Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we'll be talking with Frieden Bluma Orr about his new book, Black Boys Apart, Racial Uplift and Respectability in All-Male Public Schools. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To get us started, can you tell us about yourself and also how this book came about for you? Uh, Sure. So I am an associate professor of sociology at Tufts University. Um, and I do uh, research and teach in the areas of gender and masculinity, um, education, children and youth, and sociological and feminist theory. And prior to starting graduate school, uh, I taught uh, sixth grade in a public school in Philadelphia, an experience that inspired me to pers- uh, pursue a career in sociology, um, and specifically um, on research on inequality in public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of as a result of uh, those experiences, I, I was broadly interested at the start of my graduate career um, in questions about um, access and inclusion um, and exclusion for Black youth in schools. Um, and I think at that time, I was much more attuned to issues of racial and social class segregation and uh, inequality. Um, but once in graduate school, I, you know, had a chance to, to kind of rethink about my work uh, through the prism of, of gender. Um, and my, um, my dissertation chair, uh, Barry Thorne, wrote a, a really great ethnography on how schools separate boys and girls at an early age and how these um, sort of gender divisions take shape over time. Um, and I sort of blended... Uh, my interests in kind of gender separation in schools with uh, my longer standing uh, research interests on racial and social class inequality and kind of de facto racial and class segregation. Um, and so all boys um, uh, public education was just uh, sort of the perfect uh, meeting place between uh, those uh, various interests. Mm-hmm. Great. So can you first start off by telling us a little bit about your methods and the two schools that you use in your sample? Yeah. So um, I spent uh, one full year uh, conducting qualitative research at two all boys um, uh, public high schools, um, one uh, which I call Perry High School in the book. Um, so all the, the names in the book are pseudonyms. Um so Perry High School was a combined middle and high school, but uh, the community referred to it as a high school, and I do the same in the book. Um, and that was a traditional um, uh, public school. Mm-hmm. And um, in the same city, um, which I call Morgan, um, the city of Morgan was another um, um, all-boys uh, public school, but this one was a charter school. Um and uh, so I spent 11 continuous months just observing um, people at the two schools. So, uh, you know, classrooms, assemblies, um, 
uh, games, extracurricular activities, um, and also interviewed um, uh, 150 total people, so students, parents, um, teachers, administrators. Um, had a chance to speak with a couple of um, uh, middle school principals and CEOs that had sent their uh, graduates to these high schools, um, and also um, um, I had a chance to interview one school district official. Um, and um, uh, the data for the book also included uh, just uh, an analysis of uh, school and school district um, um, documents. And um, I think, uh, you know, it just it, crucially, my kind of methodological guide for the book is what's called the extended uh, case method. Um, and uh, so in the words of uh, the architect uh, behind the framework, Michael Bervoy, um, what my project is concerned with is not uh, sort of statistical significance. So I'm, I'm not really out to say sort of conclusively what works and doesn't work in these schools, but instead um, I'm, I'm really aiming for kind of societal significance. Um, you know, I recognize full well that two schools aren't necessarily representative of all boys, of all, all boys schools nationwide. Um, so I'm not out to make any generalizations, but, um, you know, I just wanted to show that um, what, you know, what's happening in these two schools can tell us, um, you know, a lot uh, generally about um, black education, um, black empowerment and self-determination, um, sort of the rise of uh, neoliberal ideologies in black education. That's really what the book is aiming for. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, I'm interested in, you know, less in sort of judging the successes of one school against the failures of another. And, um, you know, I, I say in the book, and, you know, I think we have, you know, pretty good evidence of what does work in schools, you know, resources, strong leadership, you know, caring staff members, a rigorous uh, academic curriculum. But these are key ingredients that aren't at all just specific to um, any one type of school. You know, you can find these things in uh, co-ed or single-sex um, schools. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, and so... Uh, um, in addition to um, that methodology, you know, my, my work was also really strongly inspired by a lot of feminist work um, and uh, the work of uh, childhood and youth um, scholars who are out to sort of show that young people are both, I really um, love this phrase, are both uh, beings and becomings. You know, they're beings in their own right, and they're also sort of becomings on certain life trajectories. And I really um, was hoping... Um, with a book um, to speak with as many you know young uh, men as I as I could have uh, at the two schools to see what they thought about why in this day and age uh, they are sort of targeted for um, um, you know help and correction by um, by educational reformers. Nice. Great. So in the introduction, you situate your book in what you call power, privilege, and politics um, in order to understand race and masculinity. So can you set the stage for us, theoretically speaking? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, uh, most kind of generally, there are two things that I, 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 I'd like for readers to understand about um, 
the education of, of, of young black men. Um, and the first is that, you know, these schools and other um, schools today are sort of at a, the, the, the intersection of this really um, volatile uh, sort of meeting place of, of markets and democratic politics. Um, and the relationship between the two is one that's, you know, uh, uh, racialized, gendered, and classed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, um, in the book, am, am really hoping to show how today's schools are, are really a, a product of, um, you know, a legacy of schooling that dates back to, all the way back to the post-Civil War Reconstruction period. Um, and so... In addition to drawing out the kind of volatile relationship between markets and politics, um, I was hoping to situate today's schools in a much longer history of of targeting um, black boys uh, for educational reform. Mm-hmm. And uh, relatedly, I, I think what what the book um, sets out to do is to sort of reframe how we think about reform. And I think. Um, you know, reform is just a big buzzword um, in contemporary public education. And I think um, at least, you know, as, as I see it in the book, it's, uh, you know, these schools are less about reforming schools and more about um, sort of reforming black male character. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, and I can explain more in a bit, that the, the schools themselves um, aren't really changing or innovating so much as they're sort of emulating things that have been in place for, um, you know, for decades and for centuries. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and so the schools themselves actually aren't changing very much at all. Um, but what, um, what is sort of really consistent is this need to turn to, um, you know, different um, institutions and social domains such as schools um, the criminal justice system, families, um, and other social spheres um, to reform um, black men. Mm-hmm. Um, and to uh, build on that idea, um, a, 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 a main, I think, takeaway from the book is that, um, you know, what has sort of produced these two schools is a, a, a reemergence of a black respectability politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and sort of thinking about how, um, you know, we could talk about it today on the podcast. I, I actually think it was sort of on full display over the weekend at Aretha Franklin's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did you have a chance to? No, I've only seen memes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many good memes out there, and so, but there are there are more than just the memes. So, um, <laughs> but you know, so a lot happened. But one thing that I think that's really um, relevant um, for for my book is um, the eulogy was given by uh, this Reverend Jasper Williams, and I think it really um, sort of distilled a black respectability politics into its like most basic. Um, ingredients. And so um, on Twitter, I, I noticed that uh, people uh, were, were just strongly criticizing um, Williams for peddling respectability politics, which is the idea that, um, you know, change and progress are a function of reforming one's character. Um, and so Williams used his podium to promote 
um, a really conservative sort of viewpoint um, that, uh, for example, criticized the Black Lives Matter movement, um, said that only black men and not women can raise boys. Um, and he even went so far as to say that a child born into a household where the father isn't the provider, and so he's speaking here about black families, uh, will face, quote, an abortion after birth. Um, and so I think what um, Black Boys Apart is showing is that in a neoliberal era um, with this sort of decisive turn to the market for answers when democratic institutions can't provide those answers, that it's sort of um, it's sort of allowed a Black respectability politics to, to gain momentum um, because neoliberalism and, and a uh, Black respectability politics share an assumption, which is that um, an individual is responsible for his or her success and um, ultimately um, has only him or herself to blame for, for, for failures. Um, and so I'm, I'm really building on the work of, you know, people like political scientist Frederick Harris, who's, um, you know, uh, who, who says that respectability politics has become a common sense in the black community. And there are a lot of examples of this, um, um, most famously at Bill Cosby at the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, famously, uh, you know, reprimanded black youth for their, um, dress and for not speaking proper English. Um, but it's an ideology that's also taken hold in um, more progressive circles as well. And so Barack Obama even has been uh, criticized for kind of peddling a respectability politics that says that, um, that, you know, blames, um, you know, black men for not being good fathers and so on. Um, and, um, you know, situating today's all boys, public schools and this long sort of very um, complicated and in many ways destructive um, legacy of, of um, um, you know, blaming the, the, uh, the failures of blacks on their failure to reform their character. Um, and with respect to my schools, it, it's, it's, I think, important to tease out too, uh, uh, dimensions a class dimension and a, and a gender dimension to it. So the class dimension is that um, you know these politics are really elitist, as um, more well-to-do and upwardly mobile folks can kind of wag their finger at the poor for having bad habits and morals, and saying that that's why you know um, you're not doing well in life. Um, but it also has a really strong gender dimension to it, in that it's both um, heteronormative and patriarchal. And assumes that black men should be the leaders of the black community and, and, and households and, and um, suggests that black boys are more worthy of assistance than, than black girls. Um, and so this combination of, of neoliberalism and a black respectability politics have sort of taken hold, I argue, um, at the T schools in my study. Um, and that's, uh, that's one of the, the, the key takeaways from uh, from the text. Um, and the last thing I'll add here is that um, um, I sort of highlight two camps, um, one that supports um, these schools and another that strongly challenges these um, 
these schools. And the first is a black nationalist tradition, uh, which is um, and has been skeptical of efforts at integration um, in public schools and instead uh, promotes the idea of black self-determination and the right of black um, communities to create their own spaces in the face of a racist society. Um, and within this black nationalist tradition, um, and, you know, here building on the, the really great work uh, by people such as uh, Lisa Stolberg, um, Mary Patillo, uh, Eric Rose and others who've shown that, um, you know, black communities have often since, um, uh, the civil war sort of fought for where and how their kids will learn and haven't always been against integration, but instead trying to create black controlled educational spaces that are, uh, affirming for, um, uh, for their young people. Um, and I think the challenge to the black nationalism is a, is a black feminist tradition that, um, asks why black boys are held up as sort of the paradigmatic victims of racial oppression. Um, and here the idea is that, um, you know, sort of, uh, black, black feminist perspective is highly skeptical of granting, um, um, gender privilege to black boys. Um, with the thought that doing so will help to liberate the entire um, uh, black community, um, and so black feminists have 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 strongly challenged these schools by saying that while black nationalism has a lot of uh, liberatory potential, it's it's traditionally relied on a sexist politics, um, and so my book is is trying to show how um, you know the effort to to achieve um, uh, racial liberation, uh, may come at the expense, um, of black girls, um, but sort of, um, uh, sort of hold up black boys in a way that, um, uh, that, that sort of, uh, uh, splinters the black, um, uh, community. Um, and so I think that's, that's, uh, those are the main sort of theoretical kind of components to, uh, to the book. So something you briefly mentioned was in terms of reform, school reform. And so can you sort of give us an overview of the stories of how these schools um, became, especially in light of things like No Child Left Behind and privatization of education? So I, I um, really set out to do this in the, in the, in the first chapter of the book where um, explain, you know, how it is that, uh, these two schools, Perry high school and, and Northside Academy, uh, came to be in the first place. And, um, so the privatization of public schooling, I think is part of a larger story about the rise of neoliberalism that's impacted all spheres of social life, um, from education to, um, the criminal justice system to healthcare. Um, and in education, at least, it has its roots um, in uh, the presidency of Ronald Reagan, um, but it's been taken up enthusiastically, I think, across the political divide, too, including in President um, Bill Clinton's administration. Um, and beginning in the 90s, um, so, uh, President Clinton's administration had uh, was called Goals 2000, um, an initiative that really... Um, uh, seen as the predecessor to No Child Left Behind, um, 
in No Child Left Behind, um, which um, came into law in 2002, is is what really sort of codified um, uh, neoliberalism into educational policy. And um, in uh, the city of Morgan, so the site, um, uh, uh, the two schools at the heart of my study, um, um, over 15 years ago, the state um, intervened and took over the school district. And, and so the writing was on the wall. And the message here was that uh, the state had lost, um, you know, any faith in the city to be able to run its own school, um, its own schools. And um, in short order, sort of completely restructured the city so that um, a small um, committee was in charge with um, running um, uh, with running the school district, and you know this wasn't a democratic uh, process at all. Um, and and uh, the the small committee said that what we need is to give more autonomy uh, to local schools. Um, you know the the school district is too large, too bureaucratic. Nothing can get done. And um, the only solution is to is to invite um, reformers into the city and to give them space, autonomy, um, and time to come up with uh, solutions to address uh, you know, the, the the different um, ills uh, affecting, especially black youth um, in the city. And I found that um, sort of privatization took five forms in the city of Morgan. The first was um, with standardization. Um, and here, you know, educational standards became the norm, but the idea was that the same rules would apply to everyone. And, um, um, you know, we need to be able to measure whether our kids are making progress, but also schools are making progress. And so, you know, they, the city introduced school report cards to be able to, um, you know, show parents which schools were succeeding and which ones were failing. Uh, the second um, way was through innovation. And so innovation, I think alongside reform, is just a huge buzzword in contemporary um, public education. But the idea here is that supporters of um, privatization believe that change and innovation are just really hard to come by in large democratically run institutions that, you know, things just happen too slowly. And so you need to give local schools, um, the autonomy, the freedom to be able to run the schools um, as they wish. Um, the third way is through accountability. Um, so, uh, you know, given standardization and, and innovation, um, uh, you know, charters are restricted to these short-term contracts um, and they need to show like every couple of years that they're working. And so there are ways that we can hold institutions and people accountable if they don't, if they're not, they're not meeting um, uh, certain standards. Um, and the fourth way was through competition. And I think this was a really um, uh, sort of important story, especially at, at one of the two schools in, in, in the book at Northside Academy. And so, you know, entrepreneurs came in, sort of competed for these bids um, uh, the, the school district just invited um, these educational management organizations or EMOs to come in, and these are private for-profit 
uh, firms that contract with uh, local districts to, to take over schools. Um, but I think that when it was trying to show too that on the ground, there's a lot of competition between parents um, and between schools. Um, and finally, the, the, the last dimension, um, sort of the evidence of the rise of neoliberal ideologies in the city of Morgan was through surveillance. Um, and this has gone sort of hand in hand with the rise of, mm-hmm. um, you know, mass incarceration and a carceral state. Um, the idea is that, you know, a, a state can uh, save money by recruiting institutions such as schools um, to, to, to take part in surveillance efforts. And, and, you know, around this time, we see the rise of um, a lot of, uh, you know, no excuses and zero tolerance kinds of schools. Um, the city of Morgan uh, uh, famously contracted with um, a private organization to run these schools for its most, um, you know, um, at-risk and dangerous youth. Um, and so in those, uh, those five ways, I think um, uh, the city of Morgan was really sort of um, taken over by the logic of, of the market. Um, and uh, at Perry High School, um, so Perry High School, uh, um, again, was um, uh, a combined middle uh, school and high school. Um, and it was run by an educational management organization, which I call Excel. Um, and Excel came in and um, decided to make um, the school all boys and converted a, a school down the road, which had also previously been co-ed um, into Perry High's sister school. And so there was a school for the girls and a school for the boys. Um but this was done, I think, with um, uh, without a lot of um, planning and consultation with local stakeholders and parents. And so, um, what I show in the book is that you know the things sort of quickly fell into disarray. Um, and given that the school um, wasn't doing so well, um, of the five sort of market logics, the one that really um, um, sort of took over here was surveillance and the, the school um, hired a former police officer to, to be its principal. And, you know, he was out just to, to, uh, to hand out law and order in the school and um, um, uh, kind of implemented this broken windows policy that was trying to crack down on lower level offenses um, um, in order to deter uh, more serious uh, student transgressions. Um, and the idea here was that, you know, boys and young men of color really needed strict discipline if they wanted um, to succeed. Um, and so that's really the story um, about the early years at, at, at Perry High School. So long before um, I came uh, to study the school and um, Northside Academy was a charter school that um, opened um, several several years after Perry High School, and um, um, Northside um, was a school that um, at first was actually 
um, contested by a lot of um, uh, uh, feminist organizations. And so places like the National Organization for Women and the ACLU and other institutions, organizations, I'm sorry, um, argue that, um, you know, the school um, was not, uh, was illegal um, because uh, it came at the expense of girls. Um, but uh, Northside Academy um, of the five uh, market logics really was playing up um, a unique way of sort of thinking about innovation, as I argue in the book. And so um, it drew inspiration from three different um, uh, role model schools. And the first was uh, the Boston Latin School. And so the school founder, um, you know, told me he had a eureka mo moment when he learned about um, the Boston Latin School and thought that Latin would be a great way to sort of give his school um, uh, credibility and legitimacy. And uh, the second, um, um, the second uh, role model school was uh, a school I called Crane Academy, which was a local elite all boys school. And um, so the school founder was out to convince the school district that his all boys school could work for black boys because it would be modeled after, you know, uh, a school with a track record of of excellence. Um, and the third um, role model school for Northside Academy was uh, Dunbar High School um, in Washington, D.C. Um, and Dunbar High School, which, um, um, which opened in just after this, the Civil War ended, was the nation's first elite black school. And it had this all-star teaching roster. Um, um, but it was out to really groom the next generation of black leaders. Um, and so what I was trying to do um, with Northside Academy in this chapter was to say that although it was using the language in, of innovation, um, I think uh, that innovation uh, was sort of an innovation in a really restricted sense. It may have been really different from other schools in the, in the city, um, but in very important ways, it was just emulating or copying um, mm -hmm. um, things about schools that had been around for much longer um, and had track records of success. And so, um, you know, it, it, there, I, I sort of I pose the question: How how different are these schools really? If they're just trying to, you know, draw inspiration from um, uh, from these esteemed. Um, in many cases, private, uh, private schools. Yeah. Another idea that comes up in the introduction and then when you're sort of elaborating on the schools is framing uh, some of the issues in terms of Du Bois and his idea of racial uplift. So I was hoping you could elaborate sort of on that idea, but also what it meant for what you were seeing in the schools. Sure. Um, so, uh, so racial uplift, um, and history of black politics is, you know, a, a, a term with a really checkered um, history. Um, so during the Reconstruction period, um, when freed blacks had made real gains, um, the notion—I'm sorry—the notion of racial uplift was something that was really positive, and it was associated with the idea that um, you know education could be a vehicle to full equality for blacks. Um, 
but there was this vicious backlash um, in, d- during the Jim Crow era, which nurtured a second form of uplift. And here, um, this is an uplift that you know resembles uh, respectability politics. And so blacks now are tasked with lifting up themselves. Um, and so we see the emergence of a kind of a self-help respectability politics, um, which stresses ideas of um, kind of self-reliance and reforming one's character to be uh, morally upright, uh, thrifty, obedient, and so on. Um, and I think it came with uh, sort of uh, an admirable desire to reject um, stereotypes of blacks, but um, it, it really aggravated uh, class tensions within the black community. Um, and I, I was really inspired um, by Du Bois's um, work on gender and education in the book um, and beginning with his notion of racial uplift. So Du Bois famously proclaimed um, in his early work that the black community could only be saved by its exceptional men. So a talent attempt as, as he called it. Um, and it's an ideology that suggests that it's the responsibility of an elite leadership to help the black masses who can't help themselves. Um, and, you know, with respect to Du Bois, what um, uh, the a Black Boys Apart, my book is trying to show is that um, reformers, all kinds of educational reformers, um, um, draw inspiration from Du Bois and, you know, to, to, to use the language of um, the, uh, the scholar uh, Roderick Ferguson, um, uh, people cited to Du Bois. People are constantly drawing inspiration for Du Bois, but in ways that sort of reinforce their own political commitments. Um, and the way I saw this playing out, the book in the book is um, sort of a talented tenth um, thesis taking hold in different ways at mm. the two schools, um, and um, drawing on the work of another. Um, um, a critical scholar, I really admire Joy James. Um, uh, uh, sort of re- reformers and others are are sort of freezing notions about Du Bois, um, and the, the book is trying to help sort of thaw these notions and say maybe we shouldn't rely on a talented tenth ideology to support all boys' education when other kinds of um, ideas from Du Bois are much more progressive. Um, and democratic, but I can, I can return to that at the end of the podcast. Um, so, um, uh, just, just really, uh, quickly, um, uplift sort of at, at Perry high school took place, um, um, in the form of, um, a black male leadership. And, uh, the school was really concerned with surrounding the boys with as many, um, uh, positive black role models as possible. And so the entire leadership, save for one woman, was a black man. Um, the school district helped recruit a number of um, former administrators who had been principals themselves to be assistant principals at the school. And so there was a group of about 10 men at the school who I saw who were really sort of uh, uh, kind of pulling the strings and determining um, the agenda for the entire school. And um, at, at, at 
Perry High School uplift was really about, um, you know, sort of three things, two things which didn't work so well, and a third, I think, which had much more promise. Um, and the first was what I call a, 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 um, a black male speaker series, and the boys were constantly, um, you know, being sent to assemblies and other meetings where, um, uh, black men from the local community and from outside of the city were invited in to sort of share stories about how they had made it. And, you know, if they had made it, then the boys at Perry High School can make it. Um, but this really um, was met with a lot of resistance from the boys who were sort of offended by the message they were getting from uh, these older men they didn't know. Um, um, a second um, way was through uh, uh, classroom lessons, and these were sort of hit or miss, but there were many opportunities for the boys to talk about um, in a black identity, black male identity, and in black male empowerment um, in the school, and to talk about things like the election of Barack Obama and what that meant. Um, you know, there are a lot of discussions in school about uh, policing and surveillance and how um, you know, these things harmed uh, black men. Um, and a third way uh, was through a new um, um, mentoring program. And I think of the three, it held the most promise because it um, was, a, a, you know, a sort of a long-term um, commitment, um, but it brought together a lot of, um, a lot of men um, who were committed to working with boys um, for the long term, so meeting with boys um, uh, during school, but primarily after school. Um, but you know, crucially, again, you know, the, the 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 group of people who was really sort of leading the way here was um, uh, this really strong black male leadership, and um, you know, it was something that really was just you know, unquestioned that the, the school absolutely had to have a strong black uh, leadership because what the boys needed um, were, were uh, sort of visions and models uh, for success uh, who were other uh, black men. And um, Uplift at Northside Academy took on a different form. Um, and instead of a strong black male leadership, um, it promoted... Um, uh, strong relationships among the boys, and so a brotherhood, as I call it in the book. Um, and the basic idea here was that the school didn't think that, um, or certainly not to the extent that it uh, that it was the case at Perry High School, um, the boys didn't need to be taught and mentored by black men um, because these were black boys who were being groomed um, to. Uh, eventually, you know, leave the school in the city and be successful in white-dominated institutions. And so they needed to be able to uh, to work with um, and sort of engage with um, uh, people of all um, of all uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and a related idea was that uh, because the school was was really concerned with finding the best. Uh, teaching talent, um, it, you know, uh, this could be um, a person of any gender or race, so long as it was someone with 
you know, really good academic credentials and could, um, uh, could teach, uh, the boys a, a classical curriculum when grounded in Latin, um, that you didn't need to just, you know, uh, promote the idea that it, a, a black man needed to be at the front of the classroom. Um, and, uh, so with respect to uplift, and I think this kind of links to something at the end of the book, but, um, at Perry high school, uh, although there wasn't a strong brotherhood, um, the boys were being groomed to one day be what I call, um, kind of heroic family men. The idea was that they needed to, um, sort of survive and stay strong now because they would be called on eventually to take care of their community, um, and other fictive kin. Um, while, uh, the young men at Northside Academy, um, had a really strong brotherhood and they were, they were tasked with looking out for one another now so they could eventually succeed and make it out of the community, um, and go on to be leaders of industry. Um, these are people who, you know, the, the, um, terms like success, I'm sorry, phrases like success in the global economy was really important at a school like Northside Academy. Um, you know, the school was really trying to ask the boys to reject their local community and see that there were threats at every turn and the boys needed to look after one another because they were, um, you know, the, the city's exceptional young men and they needed to be able to get out in order to be successful on their own terms one day. Um, and so that's how I saw racial uplift, um, sort of playing out differently at the two schools. So then you move into a discussion of what you call contradictory discourses. So this is in terms of justifying separating boys and girls. Can you tell us more and give us some examples of those that you found in the schools? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I, I in, in chapter two, I was just trying to kind of answer um, or, or uh, to, 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 to describe the answers to the question, the most basic question um, I asked, which was why separate boys and girls in schools. Um, and you know, the, 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 the kind of common sense response, most popular response was that boys and girls, uh, distract one another. Um, and Elizabeth Woody, who, um, has done really great work on all, um, on single sex education calls this a discourse of distractions. And what I'm trying to do in this chapter was, uh, to show or to complicate this discourse and to say that a respectability politics plays a really important role um, in these discourses. Um, and so when I, you know, was talking with people, I would find that, you know, they said, actually, I'm not sure if it's always the case that boys and girls distract one another. Um, it could be something really perilous. And so a second discourse was a discourse of um, teenage pregnancy where here um, boys and girls were seen as really kind of dangerous threats to one another because um, it eventually would um, lead to um, um, uh, young women being moms and boys being absent fathers um, in the lives of their children. And so the school was really trying to, um, to be careful about this discourse. Um, and uh, but what it, what it really 
shows and how respectability politics plays out here is that the schools are kind of perceiving girls in a certain way. These were, you know, dangerous, deviant, bad girls. Um, and schools, the, both schools are constantly saying that the boys need to avoid these girls at all costs and that these girls could kind of derail um, the boys from a positive future. And then there were t- uh, a couple of more discourses um, at work. This, the, the next one was a discourse of competition. Um, and here, uh, both people at Perry High School and Northside Academy um, viewed uh, girls as stiff academic competition. And that's why they needed to um, be in their own school. And so because, you know, boys, their self-esteem plummeted because they saw the girls as being smarter and so on. Um, and, but the, the, the image of the girl here, the black girl was very different. And, and this was a respectable rule abiding good girl. Um, and, uh, the next discourse was a, what I call discourse of motivation. Um, and in this discourse, uh, so respectable gentlemen and students are, um, aren't actually distracted by girls, but they're actually motivated to impress girls academically. And um, although this was a discourse that resonated with both um, with boys at both schools, it it, it really was um, um, was more at at, at, uh, at work at Northside Academy, where you know a lot of the students told me actually. I, when, whenever girls are in the building or women are in the building, that's when the boys are on their best behavior because they want to be seen as studious, respectable, um, uh, uh, gentlemen with, you know, a, a, a good head on their shoulders. Um, and, uh, so all these kind of discourses were at play at the schools. Um, and the last one was, a. um, uh, a gay school discourse, which played out uh, differently at the two schools and at Perry High School. Um, um, so the the idea behind the gay school was that the the boys believe that an all boys school mm-hmm. uh, both attracted boys who were gay to the school, um, and also um, this all male environment um, had the potential to turn boys gay who are otherwise straight. Um, and so at Perry high school, um, this, uh, gay school discourse, um, took on a really kind of troubling form because it, uh, linked up with the school's reputation as, um, a prison. And so it stoked what I found these really, um, uh, sort of troubling anxieties around, uh, same sex, um, acts and same-sex desire in prisons. Um, and the boys, for example, would joke about uh, prison rape um, and say that, you know, because Perry High School resembled a prison and now is all boys, you know, what happens um, in these spaces is that, um, you know, uh, certain men and boys prey after weaker men and boys. And so this really taboo topic of, uh, of, uh, prison rape, um, was expressed through jokes. Um, and at Northside Academy, the gay school discourse took on a really different form. And so, because these were young men who wore, uh, ties and blazers and were respectable, 
um, they thought that other people in the community um, view them as being totally emasculated, that these were boys who, because they were North Side nerds, weren't able to defend themselves, and they were just weaklings. And the boys at North Side thought that others in the community saw them as sort of easy prey and that they could be um, sort of attacked um, um, on the streets. Um, and just sort of in conclusion here, I oh, while the discourses vary, I think really um, an important sort of thing to keep in mind was uh, okay. that they all shared an assumption of heteronormativity. And so the idea that, you know, boys and girls were, were different and, um, uh, but also that respectability politics played a really important role uh, in whether, you know, the, the, the girl that the schools had in mind uh, was a good girl um, um, a respectable girl or a bad girl or a deviant girl. Um, and so that was uh, what I was trying to accomplish in, in the second chapter of the book. So you also discuss the idea of a hidden curriculum. Um, and so maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you explain what that is and how you saw it play out in your schools? Uh, a hidden curriculum is just uh, the idea that, you know, in addition to an explicit formal academic curriculum um, that there um, are unspoken rules and norms that create advantages for some students and disadvantage other students. And uh, building on this idea, um, I show in the book that um, all boys uh, schools are really drawing on a tradition of educating uh, the head, the hand, and the heart um, and this is building on the work of Martin Summers. Um, it's the idea with the head is that uh, schools should try to, um, you know, implement a, a sort of a classic liberal arts education. Uh, the hand refers to teaching, um, to offering vocational or an industrial education, and the heart refers to educating uh, the character of Black youth. Um, and so, just really quickly at, at North Side. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the school's uh, formal um, academic curriculum was grounded in Latin. Um, but the uh, sort of the hidden curriculum was that it was trying to discipline the minds and bodies of the boys that um, in, in, in a really interesting way, the school um, turned to a curriculum that was culturally irrelevant. This is something that the boys... You know, constantly told me had so little to do with their actual lives outside of the school. Um, but over time, they came to embrace Latin because they saw it as their ticket to, um, uh, to success. And, you know, students here told me that their middle schools taught them much more about Black history than Northside Academy. Um, but the school was really committed to... Um, to Latin and, as I describe in the book, to, to sort of um, developing respectable young men who had disciplined minds and disciplined bodies. Um, while at Perry High School, um, you know, lacking a Latin curriculum, um, the school is much um, sort of more attuned to offering culturally uh, relevant uh, curricula, and one actually that in some cases rejected a respectability politics where um, you know, teachers, um, 
we're trying to keep it real with the young men and, um, you know, really wasn't, we really weren't trying to promote the idea that, um, you know, respectability was their ticket to success. Um, and so, uh, the academic, uh, curricula took on really different forms at, at, at the two, at the two schools. So a word that comes up a lot in your book is the word resilience. So I was hoping you could elaborate on that for us. The book in part is, is, is trying to do is, is to say that, you know, in, 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 in recent years, there's been a lot of really great and important work um, sort of promoting the idea of resilience in um, public education um, in a close uh, um a, a concept that that's that's um, similar to resilience is grit. It's probably it's it's the more I think controversial version. Um, and the idea here is that you know if if students can just learn to change themselves, then um, that'll result in positive outcomes later in life. And and so um, things like uh, delaying gratification, being optimistic, persevering. Um, you know, learning to beat the odds that if, if, if you learn to develop these skills now and change yourself, these sort of soft or non-cognitive skills, that these are really the, the ingredients for success. Um, and what I'm trying to do in the book is to say that, you know, we should be really um, worried about efforts to change the character of Black youth because there's a long history of uh, respectability politics, which... Um, you know, has has just proved divisive in, in black communities and in um, educating black um, kids, um, and so you know, I I think my my book in part is just trying to challenge what I see as kind of endorsements of all boys education uh, for black and also for Latino boys um, as uh, potentially a good thing because they build resilient kids. And um, um, I think that we should be skeptical of those endorsements because a lot of work on resilient Black youth really are focusing just on gifted and academically oriented Black youth. And these, it's a really sort of specific cross-section of Black youth and there's just great variability among this population. Um, and that instead of promoting things like individual resilience, what we need instead um, um, is just ways of sort of supporting, um, a collective resilience in, in black communities. Um, and so, you know, at the beginning of the book, I'd say resilience is in, in some ways is really important because it shows that black youth are empowered change agents in their own schooling. But I think the, the bigger story, uh, the story we need to be concerned with, um, is the story of respectability and not, and not resilience. So I want to make sure we get to chapter five. So here you subtitled that chapter, The Making of Black Men, and you talk specifically about this idea of what's called adultification of black boys, and you tie it to some other recent sociological work. So I was hoping you could explain more what that concept means, and then also how you saw it playing out in your research. Yeah, so um, adultification, that term comes from um, and Arnett Ferguson's, um, just incredible book, uh, Bad Boys. Um, and the idea here is that 
uh, black boys are treated by school officials and other authority figures um, as adults. They're sort of perceived as adults as being dangerous, um, as not being childlike. And if they're viewed in, uh, in these ways, are deserving of adult forms of, of punishment. And so in the last uh, empirical chapter of the book, I show that the boys at the two schools are kind of groomed into becoming different kinds of men. Uh, as I shared earlier, uh, at Perry High School, um, you know, because these were a lot of boys that were not destined for college, in many cases had no aspirations of attending college, um, the school was trying to promote this idea of the boys being what I call heroic family men. And these are men who, these are boys who needed to survive and take care of themselves now because they would one day be tasked with taking over and leading their own community. They needed to be able to take care of their sons and daughters if they had children and to take care of, to being a good provider for their families. Um, and in speaking with a lot of, um, interviewing a lot of the boys, they also promoted a vision of the good life. And this was just a really kind of modest view of an adult life where they would be financially responsible um, and stable and had a family. But these weren't really grand aspirations of being, you know, um, uh, you know, leaders in a global economy or anything like that, but they just wanted to have, um, you know, uh, a stable future where they could just um, not be bothered by the outside world. Um, and at uh, Northside Academy, because, you know, this was a school that was trying to groom, as I saw it, you know, a talent, a tenth of source. These were uh, the exceptional men in the community, and they would be, mm -hmm. become what I called ambitious entrepreneurs. Um, and these are, you know, boys and eventually men who were self-reliant, who were leaders, were on the cutting edges of their industries. Um, and they would, uh, had no responsibility to come back and look after their community. Um, um, and instead the community was exactly what, um, was a roadblock to their success. And so they are, um, unlike at Perry high school where the boys were tasked with sticking around their community at Northside Academy, the boys were tracked, um, out of their community. And I think that proved uh, troubling for a lot of the boys who, you know, had learned to kind of code switch and, um, you know, the school's asking them to kind of reject their peers back at home. But these were a lot of boys who really cared about um, their friends back at home who were not Northside students. And so there's, you know, a lot of sort of conflicting emotions there that I try to draw out in the book. Um, but um uh, and so at, at Northside Academy, these boys were becoming ambitious entrepreneurs who eventually would leave um, the community and would be, um, you know, in, 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 according to the school's motto, sort of they would be, um, uh, they were solely responsible for their own future fortunes. And so fortune here was both sort of their fate, but also I think tied to kind of being um, very financially successful um, one day. 
So in the conclusion, you turn your eye to the institutional level differences in general, but also between these two schools particularly. Can you give the listeners your sort of big takeaways from this work? Yeah. Um, so the first is, I think I'm hoping uh, readers will um, sort of understand how we can use all boys education to understand black respectability politics today and, and how um, black respectability politics, um, there's both peril and matters of survival behind that. Um, and with survival, I think, you know, I, I um, if, uh, if there's anything, I think I, c- I could have done a much stronger, much better job in my book of sort of showing how um, a respectability politics um, is a survival strategy there. I think, um, you know, there's great work by uh, Nora Gross, for example, um, who's shown that, um, you know, black youth are kind of acutely aware of media representations that drive a wedge between respectable and deviant images of black identity. And they're told that, you know, if you want to survive, then you need to be able to, you, you need to dress a certain way. You need to, to really make sure that you look like you are middle class in that you are not, um, you know, a thug, for example. And so in, in, in a really, I think, important way is uh, respectability politics is, is a survival strategy. It's, um, as some people call it, sort of a form of black armor. And I think in an era of police brutality and mass incarceration, these are really important concerns. Um, but respectability politics is also um, a matter of peril. Um, and I think that um, while supporters of all boys education, um, you know, I think ostensibly these are schools that should be um, supporting um, all boys, but instead, um, as I saw it, you know, they're, they're really just targeting um, the most exceptional boys who have the best chance of making it out of the community. Um, and this drives a wedge between upwardly mobile black respectable black uh, boys and they're more at risk peers and these are young men who are more likely to be involved um, in the criminal justice system criminal justice system and the informal economy and so all boys schools are just um, sort of aggravating a black respectability re- black respectability politics um, that have uh, that's taken on a new life, I think, in, in an era of neoliberalism. Um, and uh, the second, I think, big takeaway is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, the, the book is not at all an endorsement of the schools, um, but I think that I, I was trying to highlight ways that, um, you know, um, uh, the schools were, were promoting positive forms of behavior. The Northside Academy, for example, um, although it was a very strict school, um, uh, it, it sort of promoted diverse ways of being boys. And, and so, you know, at these weekly, these raucous weekly assemblies, um, boys who took, who participated in drama and dance, um, you know, were, um, were applauded alongside boys on the basketball team. And so the idea here is that in a really restrictive environment, uh, paradoxically, that boys are able to um, 
you know, be their true selves. And I think there's something really important behind that. And, and I hope um, that schools can, can continue to promote, you know, different ways of being boys without always, um, you know, idolizing sports, for example. Um, and uh, at uh, Perry High School, uh, the school was rejecting, I think, respectability politics and, and, um, I think that's, that's, that's a really big takeaway uh, from the book. Um, and then just to wrap up here, I, I think um, if the schools, as I argued in the book, are really um, sort of obsessed even with this notion of um, racial uplift and a talent attempt ideology, that um, we, we should thaw these notions associated with Du Bois and instead take up what he called um, an abolition democracy, which is just the idea that, um, you know, we need collective mobilization that challenges white dominance across social spheres from education to healthcare and so on. Um, and here I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm really asking schools to, um, uh, to consider how they, they sort of overemphasize competition and self-reliance at the expense of, sort of promoting uh, the greater collective good within their communities. Um, and, you know, I, I find a lot of um, uh, good being done in radical movements and radical youth movements, including Black Lives Matter, which really um, um, has rejected a respectability politics. Um, and I think that's the first step towards um, uh, towards all boys schools that will be much more inclusive and progressive, um, and less exclusionary. Um, and I think, yeah. And so those are my, my two main takeaways from, uh, from the book. So today we've been talking to Frieden Bluma Orr about his new book, Black Boys Apart, Racial Uplift and Respectability in All Male Public Schools. So what are you working on now, Frieden? Um, yeah, so um, I am uh, sort of embarking on two uh, projects that build on um, ideas I developed in the book. Um, and the first is just um, uh, to and, and kind of investigating um, some of Du Bois' early work on education and how that links to um his work on uh, religion. And I see just a really interesting relationship between his work on um, education, black education and the black church. Um, and the second project uh, is just to um, explore uh, the relationship between whiteness and masculinity. Um, and I'm trying to just bridge insights from the sociology of race and the sociology of gender, which aren't always in conversation with one another um, to help sort of create more tools for scholars to understand how, you know, masculinity and whiteness combine today in ways that, um, that do a lot of harm. Great. Well, if any of those turn into books, you know where to find us. <laughs> so thank you again for being with us today. Thank you so much. This has been really great, Sarah. 